We have to really ask ourselves, why did Alton and Alton's minority demographic have such a significant importance in the late 1800s and the early 1900s within this state? Why? Because we had a chemistry. We had a chemistry within our families. We had a chemistry within our economics. We were progressing. We were moving along the lines of integration. We were developing uh, new political and, and social trends to where we could be integrated within the, the rest of the American society. All of that existed right here in Alton and those families, you know, came through Mexico at a point of time. Hello listeners, that was Joshua Young starting off our two-part episode that has been several months in the making, over six months to be exact. When I first learned about the Mexico neighborhood, I knew there was a story to tell, but to be honest, I had no idea how powerful, important, and timely of a story there was. Over the past six months, I have interviewed 13 people, a new record for an all-town USA episode, and each interview has left me better informed about the issues facing my town and my country. I am humbled by the thoughtful and hardworking individuals who make up this particular community. You will hear from many of the elders who grew up in Mexico, and some who still live there. A retired judge, a social entrepreneur, an Alton historian, and a sociologist. I hope you take the time to listen to both parts of this episode, and I hope you are able to feel connected to the amazing individuals you are about to hear from, and that you are able to better understand some of the issues most, if not all, of our communities around the country are facing. Because remember, we're all in this together. This is about all of us. I'm Stephanie. Welcome to All Town USA. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. Let's begin our story back in the mid-1940s through the 1960s. The Second World War had just ended, and the United States was experiencing extraordinary economic growth. Never in history has the American family known such well-being. And Alton, Illinois was no exception. A standard of living beyond the wildest dreams of anyone who lived a half century ago. Numerous factories were based in Alton, producing everything from glass bottles to ammunition to steel. And Alton's population was on the rise reaching its peak in the 1960s. And right in the heart of Alton, just a few blocks up from the river, lies the neighborhood known as Mexico. It was a predominantly black neighborhood full of hard-working class families. Now I know you're asking yourself, why is it named Mexico? I asked myself the same thing. Here is Diane Ingram, one of the elders I spoke to who grew up in Mexico. Mexico got its name back at the turn of the century in 1920s, Mexican immigrants came from northern Spain and Mexico and they arrived in Madison County. They were looking for jobs to escape from the revolution of 1910 in uh, Mexico. They worked uh, in our factories, the steel mills, the railroads, and they were placed in boxcars. And because of the poor living conditions, a lot of them 
once they became financially of, uh, independent, they moved away. They basically congregated in two areas, Pearl Street and Highland. And so that area was called Mexico. And here is David Patterson, another elder who grew up in Mexico during this time period. But like a lot of the families uh, in the area, my family came from Mississippi. We had other families coming from Tennessee, coming from Arkansas, Alabama, Louisiana. They all came for one purpose, to try to give the kids a better chance than they had from where they came from. And so... uh, uh, my dad worked two jobs, and a lot of them did. A lot of them worked all the time. It was factories. See, an average person could go to what Duncan and the Lead Works, uh, Steel Mill, Olin. You could earn a living and take care of your family, and you didn't have to have a lot of education. But but they were factory jobs, so that that was available. It was not a lot of upward mobility because uh, we still had a lot of discrimination, so you could only go so far. Everyone worked. It was uh, a lot of people migrated to Alton because of the industry. And so people had jobs, and Alton was like a middle-income town. You had your grocery store. We had our barber shop, our pool wall, our clubs. Uh, we had the hairdressers. We had... Um, open market because we had the guys pulling vegetables and fruit on the back of their wagons through the community. Uh, Mexico was a good schooling ground. You know, uh, it can prepare you for, you can live anywhere if you grew up in Mexico because they had everything. Uh, You can go uh, leave your door open during the day. We never locked our doors. Only at night when we were to go to sleep. Now where I live at, I like my dough, you know? So it's a change, you know what I mean? But it was a good place to grow up in. We had the uh, church ground where we, all the kids would go play, you know, and have fun. And That was Carson Ingram, another elder from Mexico who I interviewed alongside Diane. One thing I heard over and over from everyone I interviewed who grew up in Mexico was that almost everyone in the neighborhood was involved in the well-being and discipline of the children in the community. You know that old adage, it takes a village? Well, that was Mexico. And sometime I would come home and my mother would say, what you doing at so-and-so or this or that? And I'm like, Mama, how you know that? A little birdie told me. So people was on that telephone calling with, about your son or daughter or whatever, you know. So it was a community. Everybody, you know, kind of, you know, it had an a underground. The, the grown-ups did. They was on a different circuit. We was on our own circuit, you know. But they done lived before, so... They knew what was up, you know, with their kids. And like Carson was saying, if you acted up, by the time you got home, someone had already notified your parents, and you were in serious trouble. I love the call and answer. If it got dark and your mom yelled out the door, called your name, you could be three blocks away, someone would hear. And they would yell, and they like Carson. Someone's going, Carson. Your mother's looking for you. So it was like a community code, and they they would tell you you one of the codes. If my mother yelled out Diane, okay, I knew. Okay, she's looking for me. But if she started with Patricia Diane, I was in trouble. 
If she called your whole name. <laughs> and every all the little kids, oh, oh you're in trouble. The community was like a family and helped one another in many ways. As a child, we didn't go hungry. Your neighbor, if the Walkers had eggs, the Ingrams had sugar, and Josh, your family had flour, we had dinner. Everyone shared, and it was okay to send a child, a little kid down the street, go down and ask someone, can I get some greens out their garden? Or better yet, we could just walk down the street and pick an apple off a tree, pick berries, pick greens from the fields. Here is George Terry, another elder from Mexico and who still lives in Mexico today. I interviewed him alongside David Patterson, who you heard from a little bit ago. David and George are best friends and have been best friends for decades. And it showed throughout our interview, not just by how they teased each other, but in how supportive and proud they are of each other. I think the main thing that I look at the change in the community is we really had a tight-knit community back in the early 60s, 50s, where now the people have really changed a lot. I mean, most of our parents like hunted and fished and everybody looked out for everybody else, where now it's kind of different people, everybody does their own thing. I think people look also at us being a poor community because there's nothing out there now. But as far as poor, I don't think we really started going, being knowing that we were that poor until we started going to middle schools and mingling with other people. Because, you know, we had apple trees, fruit trees, pear trees, there were all kinds of food-free things in the community. I think just to echo on uh, what George has said, uh, the way we grew up, like George has already said it, um, you really didn't know that you were poor because everybody else was in the same condition. But the thing that we did was, as a collective group, you know that old book, It Takes a, a Village uh, to Raise a Child, that's the way we were. I didn't know we were poor. I was like, what did that mean? We never missed a meal. We had three meals a day, and I never wore hand-me-downs. So, again, it was just a matter of trying to help one another. Uh, the stores that were in the area, at that time we had Natalie's and, and Goldman's Market. Now, these were neighborhood stores. But back during that time, if our parents didn't have the money, uh, they could go to the store and uh, they could get some food items, and then they would owe the owner. So at least they could get some food, you know, to feed their families. So again, that was uh, made for a lot of cohesiveness as far as uh, us getting together and sharing with one another. And Sunday was huge in the black community because you had uh, your Sunday dinner. Everyone made a big Sunday dinner. And it was really nice when you would go to church and we would all bring the basket and we share. But it was just continually building a sense of community and survival. Next is Faye Walker-Taylor, who I interviewed with Diane and Carson. 
An elder from the neighborhood, Faye played an integral role in this episode. Not only is she extremely passionate about Mexico, but she knows so many people from the area and helped me get in touch with many of the people I interviewed for this episode. She and Diane are also involved in putting together a Welcome Back to Mexico event each year, which aims to celebrate Mexico's history and bring the current community together. Here, she and Carson talk about how some of the people on the outside viewed Mexico when they were kids. Like I said before, growing up, I didn't know they called Mexico the ghetto. Yeah. Because it wasn't a ghetto. Oh. And, and our streets looked just as good as anywhere else and everything until I started getting older and going to high school. And they said, oh, you stay in Mexico, you live in the ghetto. No, I didn't know it was the ghetto. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't carry ourselves as the ghetto. No because of the love and the community and the morals and the standards we had. And then, you know, just like anywhere else, the taverns or whatever, but a lot of times, if anything did happen, it was the people coming in and going back to their area. It was a great place to grow up in. It wasn't as bad as people uh, thought it was. Uh, matter of fact, me and a friend, her brother, we were just talking. He said, man, you remember the time that we couldn't hardly get a girlfriend on the outside because they said we weren't going to be about nothing because we from Mexico, you know? And so that was a lie, but that's the reputation that it had, you know? I asked them what made Mexico have such a strong community and how that strong sense of community impacted them. Morals that people had. People, families. So the parents, yeah. Yeah, they raised us, you know, they washed out. That's where we got it from. We didn't get it on our own. You could take it anywhere in the world and use those basic, and you could survive. So even if your parents had to work two jobs to send you to school, they did whatever they needed to do. And that's what we witnessed, that work ethic, the ethic of sharing and community. But the thing was that we grew up knowing that the foundation for our living, our folks had come here so we could have a better chance and they wanted us to be involved in doing positive things. It was also clear that religion and church were integral to the strength of the community. I think the church was involved in, in uh, helping us also. I think some of the young people today, perhaps, they don't have that same foundational ground that we had coming up. But it's the foundation of the church, the families pulling together, helping one another. You need a cup of sugar. Go with so-and-so house, get, see if you got a cup of sugar for me. I go, I thought, Ma, I don't want that. Go on over there and get that. Like, it was just, they don't do that anymore. You better not go in by the house talking about some sugar. <laughs> so it's the church foundation with the morals and what that was instilled at us. Even as we went out in the world, you know, we had a calling back. And we come back, you know what I mean? We know what's right and wrong. So that's what helped establish, you know, I think, Mexico. The lessons learned, our life lessons, sense of community, family. Uh, we were able to get a good education. The Alton school system was good when we were kids. So we were able to go into the world and excel. And there's so many wonderful stories of people coming out of Mexico. David echoed Diane's feelings about education and not just the importance of getting a good education, but of having teachers and mentors who were dedicated to helping their students succeed. I remember uh, when I was going to school, we were out in, uh, in the hallway, we were goofing off, me and some of the guys. And this counselor, this was at Alton High, 
And she saw me and she motioned for me to come inside so she could talk to me. And I went in the room and she said, well, she said, Dave, uh, now I know you know better. You shouldn't be goofing off like you like you doing. And uh, there's a lot of things that you could do uh, that would be much better than that. And I'll never forget. I, I asked her, I said, you know. Studying geometry, trigonometry, and algebra, and all these different things. I said, how is that going to fit in my life? When I was, at that time, 16, 17 years of age, something like that, trying, trying to learn. I said, am I going to be going out utilizing uh, geometry, trigonometry, and algebra, different things? And uh, she said, if you learn those subjects... You will learn how for the rest of your life to how to solve problems. You will be getting the basics that will enable you to not give up, but to figure out how do I get from here to here. And that's just something that, that I picked up that, that uh, I think some of the teachers tried to import into me and, and all of us, that, uh, that there was a better a better uh, uh, future if we work and strove for it. You know, and everybody did it different ways. Everybody got d different ways, but uh, education has always been uh, so important. It's been a real, a real integral part, as well as the, the teachers and everything that tried to instill in us a sense of, uh, a sense of purpose. Uh, and I think that's, that's one thing that uh, really uh, is devastating to see a lot of young people without a sense of purpose. See, and if you don't have a good identity about yourself, a sense of purpose about yourself, then how can you respect someone else? So how do you instill that in, in a young person so that uh, they'll want to prosper and, and do something positive? George brought up another individual. Don't forget Jimmy Wilson. Who made an impact outside of school. He started the Middletown Center. The Middletown Neighborhood Center was located in the heart of Mexico. Both George and Faye spoke highly of this center, which provided children a place where they could get help with homework, learn job interviewing skills, receive etiquette lessons, and of course have some fun. They threw block parties, dances, took kids to plays and nearby festivals. But sadly, a lack of money forced it to eventually close the doors. But like Jimmy Wilson, George recognizes that there were a lot of people in the area that made an impact on him and his peers. And then you looked up to great successes, like, you know, Walter Porter, who lived right across the alley, brain surgeon. His brother, his brother, Eddie Porter, a dentist. Those people, Ed Krumer, you know, outstanding basketball player. You know, all of those people played a part in the lives of, of us, helping us know who we are, you know, and where we came from. So we had, we had, we had some uh, mentors that uh, were uh, uh, interested in our well-being and, and would challenge us to do what was right. So, yeah, I recall that distinctly. Uh, but those, those were some tough times. Those were some tough times. And even our time in high school, 
we encountered some some difficult times. Dealing with race. Dealing with race. Dealing with race. I mean, it's no it's no ignoring it. Um, but we thank God that uh, we were able to get through it. I asked George and David to talk more about how they had to deal with race growing up and the impact it had on them. But I think as you move up, you run into different things and you start to realize that you aren't getting the same things that everybody else is getting. I mean, I remember when I went to college. I got a scholarship to college, played basketball. I realized I'd sit in classes where there'd be two or three blacks in the whole class. <laughs> that was kind of odd. We eat in the dormitory. There's only about two or three people eating in the dorm. I'm sitting there like, God, I'm really different, you know, really different. These, they had privileges that I didn't have. And I think the more, especially when I graduated and then went to State Farm, went to State Farm, I'm the only black in the whole building. It's a big building like that. I'm the only black in the whole building. But I kind of got used to that. Then when I came here, same thing. You go to meetings, I'm the only. And then race starts to play on you. It starts to play on you when you start to say, some people are looking at you and say, oh man, you lucky, you get to do this, and you get to do that, but it's really not, not, as, not as good as you think. But I don't want that to get confused with contentment. The fact that others were uh, being allowed to do certain things. I mean, when, uh, when George was playing and some of the other guys were playing, you could be the greatest basketball player on earth, but they wouldn't let you play on that team. Or either you could, they would only allow one to play at a time. So that had, had uh, you know, negative uh, uh, tones to, uh, to, you know, to all of us, that we could only go so far, you know. Uh, to think that we could actually do this, um, Again, it goes back to education. You know, you, you raise a child and you expose them to the possibilities. And see, the mind wants to understand, you know, uh, what is the meaning and, and what is my purpose in life. But you got to challenge a young person and give them uh, those opportunities you know, and not just slide them through, say, well, uh, you're a great athlete, so you don't have to uh, learn algebra or, or geometry. Uh, we'll just slide you through because there will come a day when you're going to look somebody in the eye and they're going to ask you what you know. And either you know it or you don't. How you doing? 
I asked Faye if she would be willing to drive me around the Mexico neighborhood so I could get a better feel for the area. She happily agreed and we met up one rainy afternoon. She talked to me more about what life was like growing up in Mexico. But you know, we just, as they say, we had a good childhood. We did. And like everybody say, it was a community. Everybody raised everybody out there. And, and that's no lie. We go down the street, if we did something wrong, they would get on, you get home, we get in trouble. However, the news travel, it was just a loving community, you know. As we drove around, she pointed out the locations of where some of the businesses once stood now empty lots. And she drove me past her childhood home and showed me countless other homes, remembering the names of the families who lived there. These were the Clarks and the Shaws. It was truly remarkable. She must have named over 20 or 30 different homes of where her friends or other community members lived or still do live. Clarks that live there. How many of us can do that with our communities? But this is just, all, these were all homes, and the way to look at it now, you wouldn't believe it, but it was really kept up, yeah. really. Like I said, we didn't know we was poor. <laughs> <laughs> and this street here was, it was every, out here was really kept up. It don't look nothing like it look now. Yeah. I mean, not anything. Does it make you sad to see a lot of empty, rundown homes now? Yes, it does. Yeah. It really do. And you know, when we were kids growing up, and we used to go to store for these uh, the older people, and you know, they'd give you a dime and a penny. <laughs> and we used to throw the candy down and throw the paper down on the ground, and they'd say, pick that up, you know, being kids. But now, but like I said, over there where we was at, it was a lot of us. But every day in the summer, we had to make sure our yard was clean. We couldn't put no trash down. Our daddy, we didn't have a lot of grass. Yeah. <laughs> but we had to keep our yard up. So I understand now, when I have my own, you understand now. Don't be putting that trash in front of my house. Yeah, yeah this is all. So Mexico today looks a bit different than what it did back when those that I interviewed were growing up. I wanted to know when it started to change. And it became clear that a major factor was also an event that impacted our entire nation. I have today ordered to Vietnam the Air Mobile Division and certain other forces which will raise our fighting strength from 75,000 to 125,000 men almost immediately. Uh, the war uh, that gravely impacted us was the Vietnam War. We saw a decline across the nation. Uh, with behind that Vietnam War. It started changing when the guys got drafted and they went to war and then when they came back a lot of them was on drugs and that's when I saw a decline in the morality of you know which it would affect any neighborhood you know. And I think it wasn't until I got out of military because we were a lot of us were drafted in 60, 64 I think I got drafted 65 some got drafted 66. We had five or six guys got drafted the same day. So we had to experience Vietnam. Uh, I didn't experience Vietnam. I went to Germany. They sent me to Germany. But some of the guys went to Vietnam and some of them didn't come back. And here is Dr. Jackie Burns, professor of sociology at Austin Community College in Austin, Texas. You'll hear a lot more from her in the second part of this episode. But she too offered some insight into how the Vietnam War affected our communities. You know, in Vietnam, we, we really didn't um, recognize the transition that was needed. People were in the field and 
fighting one day and 24 hours later they're sitting in their living room and they really didn't have much uh, mental health support. And we know that minority groups are overrepresented in the military. So we know that probably these uh, soldiers are coming back and they're uh, there's a high density of returning soldiers with mental health problems, and including addiction. So that probably does uh, undermine the community and make it unpredictable. And I don't really think back in the 70s, we were very sympathetic to drug use or returning veterans. She also mentioned that self-medicating became a huge issue after the war. A lot of people don't want to do it, but we're talking survival at this point. While the Vietnam War era may have been the start of changing times in Mexico and communities all over the country, there are many other factors that have contributed to Mexico's evolving identity. And that's where we'll start in part two, looking at the definition of community and taking a look at how communities have changed throughout the decades. And more specifically, how African-American communities such as Mexico have changed and why. Who is in Mexico now is people, there's some still left, but a lot of them is from different, you know, come from different areas. But uh, there's some uh, that's still there, you know. But uh, it's not like when we grew up in, you know. So it's a different feel, you know. And then plus you got younger people growing up. They didn't have the same morals that we had. You know, and it's a different time, you know. And... No, nothing stays the same, but it don't mean it has never been, it's been repeated, you know what I mean? There's nothing new under the sun, what I'm trying to say. But it was a different era, you know. But it's still safe. We feel we still go in there because what has been established in the past, it still lingers. So I don't fear going back to Mexico. This episode of All Town USA was written, edited, and produced by me, Stephanie Young. Theme music by Will and Janet Buchanan. Special thanks to Jackie Burns, Carson Ingram, Diane Ingram, David Patterson, George Terry, Faye Walker-Taylor, and Joshua Young.